Our scripture is Ephesians 4, where we'll read the verses 1 through 6. I want to give you just a minute to find it because I'm going to pray words Jesus prayed prior to reading it. What I'd like to do in these, my last few uh, times leading worship with you, is encourage you on, uh, in any helpful way I can, and to accomplish that, we're going to look at the so-called attributes of the church. Those attributes were highlighted by the early church in early centuries and made their way into the Apostles' Creed. The four are one, holy, Catholic, and then assumed apostolic. And those are the things we'll look at beginning today with oneness. Now, that much having been said, Jesus himself prayed a prayer for oneness or unity. And I'd like to pray the very words of Jesus, and then we'll read the scripture I opened for you. From John 17, we pray along with Jesus these words. My prayer is not for them, disciples, alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, you and me, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. And then we'll read from Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to. One hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are the very words of God. The purpose of the sermon this morning, to put it in the Bible's own terminology, is number one, may we be brought to complete unity. That's from John 17, 23. And then make every effort to keep the unity. And that's our text from Ephesians 4, verse 3. And as we said, the early church and the Apostles' Creed and the Heidelberg Catechism talk about one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. Today, the oneness of the church. I'd like to have a little time to explain the doctrine or theology that 
is both biblical and reformed, at least to me and I think to you too, and then get to four practical suggestions for making every effort toward unity. So the biblical reformed point of view on the oneness of the church. That biblical reformed point of view begins with Pentecost. Peter got up, he spoke, people listened, they were cut to the heart, they said, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit acted on those newly committed Christians in such a way that Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, the Apostles' Creed spells out how the Holy Spirit works. We confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then comma, a holy Catholic church. And that phrase, holy Catholic church, is in apposition to, an English teacher would say, explanative or explanatory of, I believe in the Holy Spirit. That is to say, back at Pentecost when the Spirit came, the Spirit called people to become Christians and brought them into a church. The New Testament knows no exceptions. And so therefore, when the creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church, the Spirit makes Christians who become church members. That's biblical, that's reform. And then, a Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. Communion means basically community. What we're doing pretty soon, Holy Communion is one part of it. The church is, first of all, people, a community of people, not an address, not even a building, not even a denomination, but a community of people. You are a communion or community of people. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. And then an absolute key phrase, the forgiveness of sins. What the creed is doing, very succinct, is taking main points that needed to be pounded on. And the creed is saying, and rightly so, echoing the language of Acts 2, that your and my real need, our deepest need, is for the forgiveness of sins. Once and for all, we should all get down on our knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But if we are truly forgiven every time we'll sin, we'll also want to say, God, forgive me of my sins, not because we've lost our salvation, not because forgiveness of sins uh, 
is not once and for all, and not because of no perseverance of the saints, but because, because we are so offended about the God we have sinned against. Again, we pray for forgiveness again. Was that clear or too fast? <laughs> Keep on praying for forgiveness. We'll make it simple. Now, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic church. The communion of saints, you are that. The forgiveness of sins, that's your deepest need and mine. You'll see soon why I say that. Uh, uh, enough said, maybe. The catechism also means spiritual gifts. We use our God-given gifts to help each other. But that's the theology. I don't want over five minutes on the theology, so we'll quit there. Biblical and Reformed, then, just explained. The Catechism, maybe I should say, adds this. Lord's Day uh, 20 about church. I am a living member. The Reformed side with the early church in general that church is essential and necessary and all Christians join it, unless maybe they can't because they live at the South Pole or something. All right, now, the big question is, how do we be brought to complete unity, John 17, 23? And how do we make every effort to keep the unity, Ephesians 4, 3? It obviously takes effort. The divisiveness that attacks unity comes from many sides, what I'd like to do is mention two ways to make every effort toward unity, just practical application steps, and then I'll take a little while to explain the biggest enemy I have faced toward unity, and then two more suggestions toward unity. So here's how to make every effort toward unity in the church. Number one, view your church as your extended family, your extended Christian family. When we went to Nordlos, my first church, I just remember such a deep felt need to be an extended family with that church. Now, we were having children at the time. Our first was born soon after we moved there, and we had family of five children soon enough within seven years. But the nuclear family is one thing. The church should be our extended family. The Bible's language refers to the church as a family with various words. For example, Father. We pray our Father in heaven. Also, adoption, Romans 8, 29, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. Also, 
Christians in their churches as children of God, 1 John 3.10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. And then also a few times the household of God, referring not to the building and the household, but the people. And therefore, the first thing to say by way of application in how to work toward unity is this. We at Cottage Grove are an extended spiritual family, a family of God. That means that when you look at the people sitting near you in the bench or behind you or in front of you, view them as your extended family. We have some very appropriate songs written along these lines. One of them, a Gaither song, you will notice we say brother and sister round here. It's because we're a family and these folks are so near. When one has a heartache, we all share the tears, him written when someone was burned at a factory some years ago. We all share the tears and rejoice in each victory in this family so dear. And then the refrain, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. And then there's another one, equally good in my opinion. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together. Bind us together in love. Stanza one, there's only one God, there's only one king, there's only one body. That's why we sing and then the refrain again. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together. Bind us together with love. To summarize my hope for you going forward, based on the teaching of Scripture, is that oneness among you will be big and strong because you look at each other as part of your spiritual family. Number two, love the church. And by that I mean church people and the church as a congregation. Almost a little hard for me to speak this morning without emotion. We ministers must. You don't need a minister who's a basket case. But this was big in my life. And the business of learning to love the church was much bigger than I'm communicating. But when I went to my first church, Nordalos, 
there were wonderful things. Some of our best friends came from there, and we still do things with them. But there were other things, too, the consumerism I'll talk about soon, and vicious dog-eat-dog stuff among different churches for members, and it won't help you if I go into that, but believe me, I saw it. But there came a time when I was maybe four years ordained, ten years into ministry. It would have been the late 70s when I confronted the question, Joe, do you love the church? I felt called to ministry, which left some dissonance in me, and at the same time challenged to consider whether I really love the church. Now, at that time, I was preaching on the Christian family from Ephesians 5. Submit to one another. Wives submit. Husbands love your wives. And in the husband part there in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives. I recognized it's a lot harder to love wives. Not that women are bad, but because of what love means. It's harder to love wives than to submit. The bigger command is to men. I've, I've said that here in this church. Um, okay? So don't read into me putting down women now. I'm, if anything, I'm challenging men. Uh, but it said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then there were seven ways the text mentioned that Christ loved the church. And the thing that stood out the most to me among the seven was he gave himself for the church. That meant Christ loved the church by giving up his place at God's right hand, coming into the world, suffering immensely above and beyond what we can even imagine because Christ was sinless in a world of sinners. And he did it all to establish what Matthew 16 calls the church. I will build my church. And then Ephesians 5, challenging husbands to love their wives. There are seven ways in that verse if we were on the subject of husbands today, which we're not, so I won't go into the seven. But the most challenging one to me is give yourselves for your wife. Now, that may mean working. It may mean doing many things. And in extreme cases, it might even mean sacrifice and dying for your wife. That's happened in history, too. And then I realized Christ gave himself for the church, loved the church that much. And because Christ loved the church that much, I, as Christ's disciple and pastor, should love the church too, even if the church is imperfect. And I could join those who accuse church members of being hypocrites and frauds and whatnot all negatively more than most of those critics could. But if I don't love the church, I am not doing what my Christ does. He loves the church enough to be interested in 
cleaning her up. That's another one of the seven, sanctifying her. Now, that experience back in the 70s has stayed with me and is here today too. Anyone can be negative, anyone can put down the church, anyone can be a quitter, but strong people love their church. So here are the first two applications then, put very, very simply. Bind us together as a family of God and love the church, including your congregation. Both of those things work toward unity. Now, at this point, let's take a little pause and look at an enemy to the oneness of the church. There are many enemies, but the one that has been biggest in my life, at least, has been consumerism. I wrote a paper on this once, and I'll give you my title, and I wrote out what I mean by it to keep this short. The paper I wrote was on Christian, consumer, chooser, user, religiosity. Christian I put in parentheses because our churches have these kinds of Christians. There are Christians who are consumers in the marketplace and they also practice consumerism toward their church. About consumers, consumer church members or attenders, consume to fulfill themselves and their felt needs. They want what they want and they choose to buy in accordingly. That's what they do when they go to stores, grocery stores, Walmart, Kmart, wherever. And they do that toward their church too. Christian consumer chooser. Choosers, again, choose which store to buy at, Sam's Club, Costco, Amazon, or wherever. Also, some church members choose which church has the nicest program or product, in their opinion, to satisfy themselves. You notice how self is the concern here. And then users. When we go to the grocery store, we are a user of that church to buy food for self-satisfaction, and that's okay. I'm not criticizing it that much, but when we take a user attitude toward church, we change everything in the way churches have to operate. Churches have to become sales outlets for religiosity. Church pastors become advertisers or salespersons for their church. Pastors may no longer ask what is the word of the Lord, but they have to ask what pleases members. And church success is selling religion to the highest number of members or attenders. 
Maybe you get a little feeling for how vicious this is. And again, I don't want to blame everyone of well, what, what we're talking about really is idolatry, and people don't recognize their idolatry. We're talking about the idolatry of consumerism applied to the church. Now, the problem with consumer religiosity is the big I, self, which tends to work against oneness in the church. We don't see the church anymore as a family of God, but a dispenser of religion that we'll buy into when it's our way. We don't love our fellow church members. We love ourselves. We don't use ourselves for the good of the church. We use the church for the good of us. And our religion is self-religion, not the religion you heard about in our text, the Apostles' Creed. My wife and I went through an experience once, I'll share with you to bring this together if this sounds deep and complex. Mid-1980s, a, a, a girl in the church and her boyfriend came to me and said, we'd like you to do our wedding. I said, okay, we begin the preparation. Um, a little ways into it, I asked about church membership, which I always did, and the man answered this way. We are going to become a member of such and such church and an active member, because that church is hurting and weak and needs us. I was so floored, I couldn't speak for more than 60 seconds. I was so used to hearing, we're going to such and such church because we like their product. And all of a sudden, I heard something totally the opposite. Now, we have never forgotten that family. In fact, their daughter and Linda are on email together <laughs> right now. Uh, but. What I guess I'm saying to you is, watch out for that consumer, chooser, user attitude toward these people here whom you can love and who are your spiritual family. Now with that much said, let's go on and Note the third and fourth things here. Next on the line uh, here is we are wise to think Augustine's way. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Think that through a minute. In essentials, unity. In our Reformed churches, the essentials are Bible and the ancient three creeds, apostles and the other two. 
and the Reformed Confessions, three of those, Belgic, Heidelberg, and Canons of Dort. There are essentials. We seek unity in what the essentials declare to be Bible truth. Non-essentials are other beliefs. The Reformed, to me, incredibly, take no stance on last things, pre-mill, amill, post-mill, or even dispensationalism. You can be whatever you want. They're not essentials, and we should not limit people's point of view on the last things. And then the third thing is charity or love. See, Christian consumerism is really about self-love and self-satisfaction. And that's okay. I, I, I'm not down on business today. Guess what I'm saying is that hopefully we in the church can, by God's grace and with God's help, somehow transcend in our church life mere consumerism. And the practice of charity is included. I can tell you things I don't like. I'm just about 70 years old. I'm no fan of men with hair down to their waist. But should I separate myself from such people? No. I'm no fan of tattoos. I don't have any. But is that an essential? No. You know? When I have a church member who says, I'm quitting because you don't call God thee thou, but you your, is that really an essential? See? Hopefully we're getting beyond some of those things. I remember when people quit if a church had a man with a beard and that kind of stuff. We're way beyond that. The church is, in some ways, showing a tolerance now. It didn't 50 years ago when I was young, and I praise God for that. The news isn't all bad. But, see, let me repeat it again, and please just let it sink in. Essentials and unity Let's see, let me read it to get it right. Essentials in unity, liberty and non-essentials, and charity in all. That's good wisdom from Augustine. And then the fourth and last thing I would add is think in terms of one another. That little phrase, one another, is used in the New Testament repeatedly to describe how churches should be and how they can attain unity. For example, Romans 12:10, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. I appeal to you, brothers and the sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. One another. 
when we think one another, we become sensitive to others. And when we think one another in church, we become sensitive to them. Now, this church, like many, has strong members. It has weak members. It has uh, unusual members, which some people call odd ducks and things like that. You know, we're all part way on the way to maturity, and we certainly grant that. But one another thinking is really helpful. So, back to the main point in summary. Make every effort toward church unity or oneness that you can in the future. And I suggest for you that your oneness will be a strong point in your church life. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we come before you as the Cottage Grove family of God who love the church and love each other and have our essentials, our non-essentials, and still charity, and also who will go into the future practicing not consumerism, I want it my way or I hit the highway, but instead one another thinking, living and working with one another, the weak and the strong, spiritually immature and the mature, congregation and council, those who are less active, those who are more active. Such is the church we will be. Amen.